Well, good morning, friends. My name is Ryan, if you don't know me, um, and I am the priest here at Christ Church. Um, if you're new to us, we are in a summer series where we are teaching through some of our favorite songs. Now, the Psalms are known as the prayer book of the Bible. So they act as a mentor or um, a, a guide for helping us know what to pray and how to pray it. But the Psalms are tricky because they're really old. Okay? And a lot of these prayers, like their, their poetry, their songs, but they were written thousands and thousands of years ago. Like it's not like an easily transferable thing sometimes. When you're reading through it, you get all this different language about certain cities and towns and places and kings and conflicts and all this stuff. So it can be really difficult to go, how do I pray that today? Right? When you're praying about Bashan, and you go, where's Bashan? What's wrong with it? Why am I praying about it? There, there could be these tricky pieces. But also, there's themes of very raw human emotion that can make us uncomfortable as well. And so what we're looking at today is Psalm 110. So we did that in our reading earlier in the service. Now, many of the psalms are prayers for the king or for Israel. A lot of them are written for the nation of Israel in that time. In a way, you could consider them prayers for politics and political issues. And so I put out a survey on Instagram a few weeks ago saying, what different themes of psalms would you like me to preach about? And one of the options was politics, and it was the second most voted for topic. Um, now, the Psalms cover lots of different things around politics. In Psalm 20, there's prayers for the king's victory. In Psalm 21, there's thanksgiving for the king's victory. In Psalm 72, there's a prayer for the king's justice to kind of rule in the land. Psalm 72, I almost preached on today. Because it's how we should choose who we vote for. So it's a little bit of a key. If you want to read through Psalm 72 later, you can see these are the types of issues that the Bible is saying your king or your political leaders should care about. So it might be worth looking at. Psalm 101 prays for the king's integrity and for a just government. And Psalm 144 praise for deliverance and protection for the ruler and for the whole nation. So there's lots of these different themes. Psalm 110, though, is unique. It stands above all the other political-themed prayers. And so it's why I want to do it today. You okay with that? So Psalm 110 is unique because of this. It's a prayer written explicitly about Jesus who's going to come thousands of years later. And it's written by Jesus' human forefather, King David. It's essentially, and you'll see once we go through it, a New Testament psalm. Because it's so prophetic in nature, it's praying explicitly, it's seeing New Testament realities and praying about them, even though it's coming thousands of years earlier. Doesn't that sound kind of interesting? Because what King David is seeing is a prophetic vision of the resurrected and ascended Jesus. 
post-crucifixion, come back from the dead and ascended into heaven. This is what David is seeing and praying about. So here, what we have is the king of Israel. While Israel is on its rise to be a world power, and the king is seen who is truly Lord and who is truly in power over all things. So, for the follower of Jesus then, we should, see, we should pray this psalm as a declaration of our allegiance to the highest power and as a realignment of our heart and mind from any political idolatry that is tempting us in our day. How's that for an intro? Okay, big stuff. So what we're going to do, we're going to walk through it verse by verse. But you can see these are some big themes that we're seeing here. Okay, verse 1 begins with this esoteric statement. This is what was in our gospel reading earlier in Matthew. David begins a prayer by saying, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So King David's prophetic vision here is to see in heavenly realms two lords. Yahweh, he sees sitting on his throne. And to his right, he sees another lord. And so Yahweh turns to the one, to the Lord at his right, and says to him, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What we see here is that David is seeing God the Father with Jesus Christ the Son seated at his right hand in glory. This is how Jesus talks about it in Matthew 26. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So what's happening is the Father turns to Jesus and says, having completed your earthly ministry, which I sent you to complete, and, and you joyfully accepted that work, having perfectly revealed me to the world the way I want to be revealed through your life and through your teaching, having suffered for and saved the world from sin, come and sit in my joy and my favor and rule the universe in my name until I make your enemies your footstool. Isn't that a big cosmic picture? That's a lot to take in, isn't it? So what it starts with is this ascended view of Jesus. The same Jesus who comes in the flesh is crucified and dies, is resurrected from the dead, is ascended into heaven, and is given all authority and power over all things in the name of God the Father. And the promise that God the Father is saying is, I want you to sit here in my favor because you have revealed me perfectly, done everything my desire to save the world you completed. And I want you to sit here until I defeat all your enemies. All the enemies you stood silent and took their beatings from, the crucifixion from, that you took at all those enemies, I will defeat them one day. So verse 2 goes on. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So here's this like, big statement of the mission of Jesus that he's meant to do from heaven. That Jesus' authority and kingship is now being sent forth 
over all the earth with the Father's blessing. So Jesus' heavenly ministry as king has now begun. And he rules with a mighty scepter, meaning he has the power and the authority to bring about the impact that he is meant to bring. Have you ever voted for a political party and then they take power and then it feels as though they have no ability to actually enact their platform? Isn't that a frustrating feeling? Because your vote is kind of like, I sign up for this vision. You make these promises, but then once you get into power, it's like you have no power. Isn't that frustrating? Here, what we see is that not only does Jesus get the seat of power, but this scepter language goes, he has the ability to do what he wants. The vision is accomplishable, which is good news, I think. And he's saying specifically this, So David has seen Jesus as ruling over all things. He sees Jesus as seated at the right hand of God. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He just knows it's this Savior, Son of Man figure. And imagine David's elation. So he's seeing God being hands-on, ruling the universe. But he's also understanding his own kind of demotion. Because he's king of Israel. And now he's seen God's quite a bit bigger and quite a bit more active and is really in charge of everything. And even though I'm king, I'm nothing in comparison. Imagine if you're David having to process that information. That this is much bigger than him. So where is the father sending Jesus from? According to verse 2, he's sending him from Zion. So what exactly is Zion? This comes up a lot in the Psalms. I think it might be helpful to have a little bit of clarification. Zion means, the definition means high place. It's first used to refer to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is kind of on a hill in that region. Then more specifically, they use the language of Zion, the high place, to be about the temple site. Then scripture uses it to describe God's heavenly Zion. So it kind of starts out by saying, well, the high place, you know where Jerusalem is. Now the high place of worship where the temple is. But actually the highest place is God's heavenly Zion. And then we see the New Testament, they keep using that language. In Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, it says Zion is described as the church. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly. That's how they describe church. Church is a gathering with heaven. A festal gathering with the angels. By Revelation 14, we see Zion clearly to be the name used to describe God's heavenly temple, and his home for the church, And all of it is coming to earth as a new Jerusalem. Heaven and earth are coming together. So Jesus is being sent here by the Father from Zion, so from heaven, to work in the world as king. And to, this statement at the end of verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. So let's break this down. David sees God, with Jesus at his right hand. 
He sees that Jesus has the power to rule the universe in God's name. And he's going to do so from Zion in the midst of his enemies. That's really helpful language for us because it helps us understand God is ruling, reigning, and in control, but it's in the midst of his enemies. Because what we often think, well, is if Jesus ascended into heaven, why do we still see all this crap in the world? Why do we have to deal with all these problems? Why is it such a mess still, right? But here we see because he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. The enemies haven't gone away and haven't been dealt with fully yet, but just like the love of God reveals itself most clearly in the suffering of Christ at the hands of his enemies, so the authority of Christ will most clearly be revealed in the presence of his enemies. So we will see his power in the midst of and in spite of evil powers. So this is the good news. This is why we get to pray this as we go, oh, we see Jesus. We see that he has power. We see that God is sending him on a mission. But it's in the midst of a broken, chaotic world. And isn't that where we need a big Jesus, a powerful Jesus, and an active Jesus in a chaotic world? Is that why we want it? So don't be surprised by that when we're dealing with that dichotomy, that contrast. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. So now David is seeing the response of Christ's people to the day of his enthronement. This is kind of like Pentecost. So he's seeing that the people are freely giving themselves to Jesus. Not coercion or manipulation, not by force and not by fear, but because they see the beauty and goodness of Jesus. They're eager to give themselves to him. They offer themselves of their own hearts. And they offer themselves fully. The next phrase that comes up is that they do so in holy garments. So they've been preparing themselves. They've consecrated and and been arrayed in holy garments for Jesus. So it's like they're saying, my whole life is preparation and I'm putting on these clothes for this big moment because I'm a Jesus person. I'm devoted to Jesus as my king. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. It's very poetic language, but what it's getting at is that not only will God's people come and worship him, but specifically the youth. They're the womb of the morning. They're the dew of the youth of his people. And they're going to be the most passionate for Jesus. Doesn't that sound like a revival? So the youth are going, I see it. I get it. Everything else in this world is a gong show and a farce. And I'm sick of it. And I'm tired of it. And I'm an only Jesus person. And here's what it tells us about Jesus is that that's who he's really stoked about following him. They get special notice in this cosmic happening where Jesus is particularly noticing the youth who are going, I'm in. And they're showing up ready. It's a new generation born of hope. 
So then we get to verse 4. This is a very interesting verse. Okay? Verse 4 says this. After I read this, you can put that smile. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when we all read this, we obviously get what this means, right? Super easy, super straightforward. Okay, let's break this down. So the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So this is eternal. Uh, this is a, a, an eternal thing that the Father's doing. He calls Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not only is Christ the king, but Christ is a high priest. So that's what it means, the order of Melchizedek. So we'll break that down. This places Jesus in a priestly order with only one other figure in biblical or human history, and his name is Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14 in the story of Abram. We did that reading earlier. Abram, who is later renamed Abraham, just finishes rescuing his nephew Lot, who was collateral damage in a big regional conflict. Now this is before Moses, so before the Mosaic Law. This is before the Aaronic priesthood. And this mysterious figure shows up. So before any of like Yahweh's fo- um, followers or believers become like an institution... This guy shows up. And Melchizedek is called King of Salem and Priest of God Most High. Nowhere else do we see this combination in Scripture of someone being a king and being a priest. Those roles are generally separated. Okay, This is what makes it so interesting. Melchizedek is a king and a priest. And so when God is saying of Jesus, you are the king, but you're also a priest, it puts him into this order of Melchizedek. There's only one other person like this. What we see in the story is Melchizedek brings out a meal for Abram. Do you know what that meal was? Did you catch it in the reading? Meals make covenants. Verse 18, it says that Melchizedek brings out to Abram bread, wine. What does that sound like to you? Isn't that interesting? A little Eucharistic foreshadowing, communion foreshadowing. He brings out bread and wine and says he blessed Abram. Now Abram proceeds then in response to give Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe, of everything he owns. Everything. This is why when people are wrestling with the tithing question, they're like, well, do we really have to follow the Old Covenant? No, we're in the New Covenant. But we see before even the Old Covenant is this practice of tithing to the priest of God Most High. It's just very interesting. So tithing predates the Mosaic Law, etc. Now, it's actually right after this meeting that God makes his covenant with Abram and changes his name to Abraham. Now, many scholars actually think that Melchizedek is something called a theophany. Say it with me. Say theophany. You ever heard that one? A theophany 
is this potential idea that it's an appearance of Jesus himself in the Old Testament. Now, we can't say for sure. We don't know all those things, but it's an interesting, interesting thought. So the point here, though, in the psalm is not only of Christ's authority as king in the presence of his enemies, but it's also his priestly ministry of representing God to the people and the people to God in the presence of their enemies. So hear me out. Jesus is not only Lord over the suffering and hardship you're going through and the brokenness of this world, but he is a priest active in caring for his people in the midst of it. Is that good news? So Jesus is cosmic over it all, but he's also active personally in caring for your needs. We see this throughout the scriptures. Jesus in this state of ascension intercedes for us, so he's like actually praying for your specific needs to the Father. That Jesus has offered himself as the one sacrifice to the Father for our sins. So all the sin that we deal with and that we feel and that we commit We have a priest who's standing going, I've already sacrificed for this, and the Father's not holding this against you, and neither do I. Isn't that beautiful? So he's praying for you. He's sacrificed himself for you. And now he's working in the midst of your hardship and suffering for your benefit, for your good. Not just your growth, but for your good. And in all of this, he's ushering you into the very presence of God, no matter how hard this gets. Is that good news? But don't we, we need the king, we need to see that there's a cosmic planet play, but I need a priest. I need help. And to, to see him be able to handle both roles, who else can do that? Verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Okay, now we're going to get uncomfortable. Notice first the continued unity of the Father and the Son. He keeps reiterating it. The Lord is at your right hand. Jesus isn't working separate from the Father. And the Father is not separate from the Son. He's affirming the mission that Jesus is on. Now the day of righteous wrath. You know, use that language a lot. But it comes. That day comes when God unleashes wrath on the world. We believe that here. But let me tell you why it's good news. When the perfect goodness and love of God, out of a desire to redeem and restore, has utilized every opportunity for mercy and grace, only to be rejected by humanity in favor of fighting for the cause of So here's what's at play. God, in perfect goodness, is seeking to restore goodness to the world. Humanity has fallen into a participation with evil that we contribute to willingly, that we've been hurt by unwillingly. And Jesus is coming in to say, I'm bringing about a kingdom that is good and just and righteous and cares for the poor and the broken and the oppressed. Does that sound like something you're interested in? But it means you've got to switch teams. You can't continue to participate in and be on the side of evil. 
Christ has always designed that his wrath and his judgment would be poured out upon evil, spiritual evil, Satan and demons. Humanity is collateral damage that signs itself up for that same fate. Understand the difference? So here, what we get to is eventually a day comes where love cannot continue to be love and not act when goodness is defiled and injustice flourishes. Love has to act, doesn't it? Love eventually has to put a stop to it. Love has to make it right. Don't we want that? So those who have suffered under the hands of evil, we know this and long for justice to be revealed. I think it's a mark of the privileged. I realize this is a bit risky. It's a mark of the privileged who only know the fulfillment of their own selfish desires, who are blind to the impact that their selfishness has on the world around. And they despise the idea of God's justice because they want the freedom to do what they want. But here's what I know. Traveling the world, living in other parts of the world, those who are suffering, those who are oppressed, those who know what evil feels and tastes like want justice. They want righteousness to be revealed. And it's these kings that God has his sights set on. So notice who God is focused on. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. They're his first priority. Those who do the oppression. Those who exploit the creation. Those who plunge the innocent into war. And those who defy God's authority. They will be the first to be judged and they will be shattered, it says. So for us, when I read, when I pray psalms like these, I find myself going, I pity those who govern. Because Jesus is coming. I pity the CEOs and the corrupt businessmen. That we can know with complete confidence that God the Father has commissioned the Son to shatter the evil rulers to pieces if they do not repent. And every level of government will be held accountable for the fruit of their leadership. That's heavy. But isn't it actually what we want? Now here, let, let me just give a pastoral note here. In a world that's full of like, uh, what we call it, dramatic, you know, ideas of what's going on behind the scenes and what are the powers actually doing. And, and this feeling of like those, the haves are manipulating the have-nots. And, you know, this sense of like helplessness before governments that do bad things or do no things or only do what's good for rich people. The Psalms are the key to know what to pray and what to feel about that. Is that you're not stuck in that. You don't have, like, I saw a video this week. I don't know if I should talk about this, but 
I saw a video this week that was all about how the Nephilim, which is this really esoteric random thing that comes up in the Old Testament, this idea of like demons being mixed with people. Nephilim are really ruling everything. And we got to know that and we got to stop that. And I'm just like, that is so far from the New Testament. We do not have to make sense of all these conspiracies. We don't have to figure it all out. We don't have to worry ourselves with this kind of content. What we need to focus upon is the goodness and greatness of Jesus. Like seriously. So what that means is when you're getting this fed to you through social media and whatever, it's all rabbit trails. And they all take you off Jesus. This tells us that Jesus is dealing with those issues and we can count on them. We don't know what's all going on in there, but Jesus does and Jesus will take care of it. Now, here's verse 6. He will execute judgment among the nations. This tells us he's not just dealing with Israel. He's going to go through every nation's government. And he's going to determine whether or not they serve those who he allowed them to govern. So he's going to judge every level of government and leadership in the world. And then it says this line, which makes us really uncomfortable. Filling them with corpses. We don't talk like that. or I'd recommend you don't. <laughs> the Psalms, though, is the context for these types of statements. Okay, This is the appropriate place because what the psalmist is saying is that justice needs to roll. And the consequences of the quality of their leadership over, their, over the nations, over government, over companies, over those who serve them, over their servants, will be death. And I want you to remember this in the coming years. As we see rising cost of living, food, housing, with it homelessness, this is why I mean pity those who are leading. Because Christ takes corruption seriously. Now here's why we pray this in the Psalms. Because only Jesus is qualified to handle this. We do not decide whose head rolls. Do you hear me? We do not call for heads to roll. We don't say who it should be. What we do is we call to Jesus to judge righteously. But here's where it goes on. Because the pain of the lowliest person in every nation will fall upon the richest and most powerful on the day of God's wrath. Let me say that again. The pain of the lowliest person will come upon the leaders. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And no nation is going to escape this. So imagine, you're King David. You're seeing the day of the Lord in your mind. You're seeing all of this coming, and you're a king. And whether or not you're doing this righteously or unrighteously, and when we see the rest of the story, it's not all righteous. And you're seeing this cosmic picture of God's wrath. And then verse 7 drops. And it's going to feel like this doesn't make any sense. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. What? What a strange end to an apocalyptic vision. 
Christ seated, Christ ruling and reigning, Christ as priest, Christ as judge, Christ bringing wrath, Christ having a drink. It's, it's hard to track at first. But here's what I think is happening. There's a discomfort, a fear in us that we feel when we see the cosmic reality of who Jesus is. I think to quote C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia helps when Lucy Pevensey says to Beaver, is Aslan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. This last verse grounds us again in the humanity of Jesus. So here, the king on his worldwide tour of justice is pictured as taking a break in the midst of the mission to take a drink from the brook along the way before he lifts up his head, refreshed in his conviction. And here's why that matters. Because God's design for the judgment and destruction of evil is through one of us. And not just one of us, but the best of us. Here, what we see is that God's great design is for divine judgment to come through humanity. That Jesus, who is fully human, will be the judge. One of the other pieces that comes up in the New Testament later is that the saints, you and I, will be part of judging evil spirits. So rather than this like far-off God judging us and deciding whether or not we're good or bad, what we see instead is God who becomes one of us fully and then deals out his judgment perfectly. What we see from Jesus, if we were to consider the qualifications of him for judgment, is despite having all the divine power in the universe, he chooses to lay it down and become one. Who is more qualified to judge the powerful than God? When power is meant to be used for what? For the benefit of those they rule over. When he does use his divine power in the Gospels, how does he use it? Does he do it for his own sake? His own comforts? He uses his power not once to spare himself from discomfort. He uses his power only for the sake of the sick, the blind, the broken, and the sinful. In his suffering and death, he experiences the full weight and impact of evil. Nobody knows the wrongness of evil like Jesus from experience. Nobody knows the impact better. Nobody knows the fallout better. So who's most qualified to deal out judgments upon evil? In taking the sins of humanity, he shows that his desire is ultimately not wrath, but mercy. Wrath is something that God is driven to. It's not part of his eternal nature. He has been eternally happy and merciful and loving. It's sin that makes God wrathful. Because what we see is for eternity is God in existing in His love. 
having dealt with evil forever. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. This is what makes Jesus most and best qualified to judge the rulers, the chiefs, the tribes, the PMs, the presidents of this world. Jesus is best qualified. So I think the invitation for us is, it does stir us to wake up from any complacency where we think somehow we're neutral or passive in the problem of evil. When we see God's goodness and greatness, it makes us go, now I've got to make sure I'm not, I'm not on the side of evil anymore. I don't want that. It should cause us to turn from any permission we give to evil, any participation we have in evil, and any contributions we give to evil. We should want out completely. Not just for our own sake, but because of God's goodness and glory and for the goodness of the world. And it should cause us to open our eyes to see that Jesus truly is the only way of goodness. It's only Jesus. Nobody else is qualified for this task. So it should lead us to ask some closing questions. Where does my allegiance lie? Because there is no neutral here. If this is true about who God is, and if it's true what's been revealed about Jesus, then we have to make a choice. Either this is all true, and we need to be on the side of Jesus wholeheartedly. Or Jesus is crazy, and we should hate him. But it's one or the other. You either see him as who he says he is, as God, Or you see him as crazy and you should hate his message. But once we ask that question, where does our allegiance lie? Is it with evil or with goodness? Is it with earthly politics or is it with Zion? Do we look forward to the day of his justice or do we spurn accountability? Are we hungry for mercy or in love with our own Christ Jesus, the King and Priest, is good news for sinners, of which I am the greatest. So here on offer, after an intense sermon on intense big subjects, stands Jesus again with bread and wine looking to make covenant with sinners. To say, come eat at my table. Be of my cause. Be saved from evil. And come and live in the good way. That's the invitation of Jesus. Amen? So if you're comfortable with it, just close your eyes for a minute and prepare your own heart.